I grew up in a small Southern Baptist church, which meant that I went to Sunday school and I went to vacation Bible school. That was always in the summers. And I heard the story from a young age of Jesus calling us to be fishers of men. Yes, that's how I heard it. Coupled with the fact that my dad liked to fish and that I sometimes went out in the boat with him, my view of this parable has always been distorted. What I remember from the Bible stories is that we were to rescue these lost men by snaring their souls with our hooks as fishermen. The fish were lost souls doomed to hellfire, getting them to church, to the altar, and to accept Jesus as their personal Savior, all the time insisting that only our version of Christianity held the truth, was the only hope these poor fish had. What I learned from going out in the boat with my dad is that it was equally unpleasant for him as for me. I was terribly impatient, and the fish, if the fish didn't jump on the hook quickly, within a short period of time, I was ready to go back to the house. Of course, it goes without saying that I had a hard time being quiet and not asking questions. So you might say that I'm approaching this parable or story with my own baggage. What I understand now is that Jesus' call in this story is specific and particular, with roots in the language, culture, and vocations his hearers know best. What comparison would make more sense to four fishermen than the image of fishing for people? Simon and Andrew would have understood the distinctions of that metaphor in ways I never could. James and John knew from years of experience what depths of patience, resilience, and intuition that professional fishing requires. These men knew the tools of the trade, the limitations of their bodies, and the potential dangers. Most of all, they knew the water. They knew how to respect it and how to listen to it. When Jesus called these tried and true fishermen to follow him, they understood the call not as a directive to leave their experience and intellect behind, but to bring the best of themselves forward, to become fully and freely themselves. In other words, Jesus doesn't call us as some abstract general call. We don't heed his call by just attending church or being a nice person. If we're going to follow him at all, we'll have to do it in the specific particulars of our lives, our communities, in our own cultures, in our own families and vocations. We have to trust that God prizes our intellects, our memories, our backgrounds, and our educations and skills, and that he will multiply and shape everything we offer up to him in faith from our daily lives. To an engineer, Jesus might say, follow me and build my people. To the visual artist, follow me and paint the colors of the kingdom. To the stay-at-home parent, follow me and nurture my children. To the dancer, follow me and dance the spirit. To the physician, follow me and heal broken souls. 
to all of us. Follow me and I will make you whatever. It's a promise that when we dare to let go, the things we abandon might be returned to us fresh and in ways we couldn't have imagined on our own. K.C. Hansen is a teacher, a biblical scholar, and a researcher of the time in which the Bible was written, and he described the socioeconomic and political context of Jesus' ministry in, the, in an article entitled The Galilean Fishing Economy and the Jesus Tradition. Hansen says that the four fishermen in Mark's story weren't individual workers in a free enterprise system. By the time Jesus started recruiting disciples, the fishing industry in Palestine was fully under the control of the Roman Empire. Caesar owned every body of water, and all fishing was state-regulated for the benefit of the urban elite. Fishermen couldn't obtain license to fish without joining a syndicate. Most of what they caught was exported, leaving local communities impoverished and hungry. In addition, the Romans collected exorbitant taxes, levies, and tolls each time fish were caught or sold. To catch even one fish outside of this abusive system was illegal. In other words, when Jesus asked Simon, Andrew, James, and John to fish for people, he was asking them to cast aside the existing social order of power and domination and to help usher in God's kingdom one of justice and mercy. When Jesus calls the disciples in Mark, notice what's absent. No individualism, no being left on your own, no pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. He didn't say, you can handle this, so buck up. Or follow me and good luck with that. Rather, he did say, follow me and I will make you fish for people. That is, follow me and more followers are to come. Follow me and you will never be by yourself. Discipleship is not an autonomous profession. God knows, Jesus knows, we cannot do discipleship on our own. We cannot do life on our own. We cannot live into our vocations on our own. We cannot follow Jesus on our own. We need each other. We need advocates and mentors. We need peers and colleagues. We need friends and neighbors. We need community and camaraderie. We need others to take risks, knowing that we will take the next ones and vice versa. We need to tell our Me Too stories, stories so that others can tell theirs. We need each other. How do I preach the vastness and inclusiveness of the kingdom of God when time's up for Salvadorans? How do I preach God's love when a man who has been in the U.S. and has been a model citizen for 30 years is separated from his family and sent to a country he barely remembers? How do I preach the love of God when leaders denigrate entire countries using expletives? And so follow me is much more than mere following. It's believing that you follow a God dedicated to discipleship that depends on trustworthiness. 
It's believing that you follow a God who will always invest in a relationship with you and show you how to nurture, encourage, and empower your relationship with others. It's believing that our God who calls us provides many to accompany, accompany us in this calling. Who are our Andrews and Simons? Who are our Mary Magdalene's? Follow me, says Jesus, and you can. Others can. How? Because there are others there with you. And that's the message of our gospel today. I never cease to be amazed at how these early Christians made the decision to follow this unknown, itinerant preacher. Marcus Borg answered it this way. He said Jesus was from the peasant class. His use of language was remarkable and poetic, filled with images and stories. He was not an ascetic, but world-affirming with a zest for life. There was a socio-political passion to him. He challenged the domination system of his day. He was a religious ecstatic, a Jewish mystic, for whom God was an experiential reality. Jesus was an ambiguous figure. You could experience him and conclude that he was insane, as his family did in Mark 3. And he was simply eccentric or that he was a dangerous threat. Or you could conclude that he was filled with the Spirit of God. At the beginning of this gospel, Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. What good news? That the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is here. A new era has begun. God's presence on earth is making a difference. So these four disciples are called with an urgency. They don't have time to think about it. They need to be prepared for resistance, a complete disruption in their lives, like leaving their father, for instance. Mark is giving us a stark new view of what discipleship is all about. There is no tranquil scene of lazy fishing on the sea, occasionally catching something. It is wrapping your mind around a new reality. What is our gospel? What good news do we have and how will we share it? Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fish for people. People who are caught in the nets of human trafficking, poverty, war, homelessness, violence, disease, racism, sexism, homophobia. What is their good news? Amen.